So the fact that you place the sound where it should be coming from is actually quite an amazing testament to what the brain can do. Hello and welcome back to the Middles Pinches podcast. Today I'm joined with, shall I say, physicist come psychologist, Alan Archibald? Uh, yeah, just go for that. Excellent. Yeah. So, hearing researcher, actually, hearing researcher. Go I think that. psychoanalyst was one which came up. No, with, no, always... don't go for that. No, but, but like hearing, that probably hearing researcher is fine. Okay, okay. What's so? Yeah. So tell us a little. Tell us a little about yourself, and then we'll then I'll properly dig into your history and see what comes up right um so yeah uh i started off as a as a physicist in my undergrad um and then uh did a a master's in acoustics and music technology and things and then sort of found myself in this uh world of hearing research um and uh and yeah so i'm i'm now i've done my um phd and i'm now doing my second postdoc um in cochlear implants but i've kind of bumped around in quite a few different areas of, of hearing research from hearing aids to um this thing psychoacoustics uh to cochlear implants that's that's the word i was intending for at the start by the way not psychoanalyst i realized that i realized oh, that right, as, you okay. were, yeah. as you were talking there that i actually called you completely wrong <laughs> but that's fine that's fine i mean we make yeah. mistakes uh, in science that's part yeah. of it um so yeah. you you started out as a physicist and yeah and obviously the like you say a big theme in your work has been hearing was it that from day one you thought i'm going to apply my physics background to hearing or was it more that you became interested in how how did that pathway become because obviously it's quite unusual for those two subjects to be branched in that kind of way um so i think no and i think the the it wasn't really planned and i think the evidence for that is that my undergrad is physics with meteorology exactly yeah um so i kind of started in weather i guess and thought I might become a weatherman and then gradually came over to this. And and really it was, I'd always had an interest in, in music and physics and that's kind of well known that physicists are quite often um, into music, usually mm. the weirder the better. Um, and I'm no different. And the it, it was just one course I think that I took in uh, the third year of my degree on acoustics that sort of made me realise that I could do acoustics and physics and kind of try and stick the two things together and originally what I wanted to do was um architectural acoustics and go into into that kind of field um so what, what's that well, as always happens with what's architecture? um so architectural acoustics is is the the physics or the mathematics of how sounds uh propagate through uh rooms and and uh, um essentially trying to design at the high end it's trying to design opera houses and concert halls mm-hmm. to sound better and to give a, a better performance and a better feeling for the audience but uh, as ha- all ha- always happens with these things that there's quite a lot of kind of uh, private and commercial work that you can do with that but not that much um, uh, research so I just ended up looking through the different uh, PhDs that were being offered and saw this PhD on, on hearing and thought oh that could be quite interesting so I ended up uh, doing that. I like the idea that you essentially took a course towards the end of, of your your third year and, and what, but was that yeah. a case of you suddenly switched directions or was it a case that you, you didn't really know where you were going to next and, and that gave you something to, to aim for or how much did you know before uh, that course did, what you wanted to do? Uh, not a huge amount because I didn't really know um, I didn't really know how you would get into um, hearing research, or that that mm. was something that you could that you could do, and I wasn't even aiming to do that when I when I took the acoustics course. I took the acoustics course because I thought, oh, hang on, I could combine physics with music in 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 this way, and that might be quite interesting. I mean, the, the weirdest thing is that 
when you sit down with the careers advisor at school and you say that you like physics and you like music that this doesn't really come up yeah. and acoustics doesn't really get mentioned so that that's quite strange but they um no it wasn't uh i still wasn't sure i was going to do that at, at that point i thought i would become an acoustic consultant which is somebody who um basically the way that I describe it is that you have a loud thing, a wall, and a microphone. And if the loud thing is still too loud at the microphone, then you need more mass in the wall. Okay. And that's that's kind of what acoustic consultancy can boil down to sometimes if you're doing schools and stuff like that. Um, but then I decided to, to go back into research. And so, yeah, it was just what was being offered, and it was close enough to other things that I had done. And I guess I had enough experience and knowledge in acoustics that it could be applied to hearing. Excellent. Okay, so you you went from your from your undergrad through the musicology to your PhD, and I understand that was focusing on this difference between these things called in 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 here in he, sorry in head out of heads here. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a very strange and weird um, area of hearing and, and psychoacoustics, um, and it's one in which actually, uh, if you're at a conference talking about it, a lot of people will go, "What what are you talking about?" this inside the head and outside the head listening um so so yeah so it's it's this weird um kind of tiny field of psychoacoustics called internalization and externalization of sound uh originally it, originally it was only really studied by uh, germans so it was in kopf localisieren and außer kopf localisieren um and basically yeah so it's it's whether the the sound is outside your head or inside so what we are doing now, we are we're talking on microphones and we're listening over headphones. So my head is my head, my voice is probably appearing inside of your head, and we'd call that an internalized sound. And um, when you're listening in the in the real world or walk, walking about doing your your normal things, then most of those sounds should sound like they are outside of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's this tiny tiny area of research um, that kind of brings in quite a lot of weird philosophical ideas about what exactly is a sound inside your head and outside your head and what could be causing it. But the reason why they were offering a PhD in this was because they thought that um, there there was some evidence from surveys that people had carried out that uh, hearing impaired listeners who used hearing aids heard more sounds inside their head than outside of their head and that this was a problem being caused by the hearing aid. Um, And basically they needed somebody to, to... um, look into this and see if they could come up with an engineering solution for this and that's that's basically where I started from. So what do I be right in saying that if your own thoughts inside your head would that count as an in-head in, an in sound or is it purely those which are you know put directly into your ear canal without that kind of directionality that you'd have from someone talking to you across the room? Yeah so that, that's a good point so we decided to, to keep things keep our problem definition quite um, narrow okay. and went for the latter there so we, we thought about sounds that should basically sounds that should appear outside of your head but are actually appearing inside or mm-hmm. sounds presented over headphones which you would expect to appear inside so we didn't consider um, voices inside the head although I have been asked about that and actually my first citation was from a, a schizophrenia paper hmm. so those kind of things are are link across there and also we didn't consider tinnitus because that's that's a whole other massive field of um auditory research right now and um, that a lot of people are looking into um so because our our issue was so uh, i think there had been so little work done on in internalized sound just from sounds being outside the head and then and then appearing inside that we decided just to look at that because it's only three years 
Is it the case that they felt disorientated by this, or it was just an annoyance, or it was a confusion kind of thing? I suppose, how big of an issue was it that people had this? What was the problems that it caused? Right, so so we so we knew that, that it, 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 it was an issue, but actually one of the things that we didn't know and that we looked into was how big of an issue it was, yeah. how many people are actually suffering from this. So the, the one thing that we knew from this one question in a, in a hearing survey that was uh, done about um, 10 or 15 years ago was that the... Uh, prevalence of internalized sounds um, increases with the number of hearing aids you wear. So if you wear no hearing aids, you should really not experience it at all. If you wear one, then it, you experience it some of the time. And if you wear it two, you experience it more. But what we didn't know, th- this was just a kind of, um, you know, how often, do, the, um, the question was how often do these sounds appear inside of your head? And we didn't know how many people actually experienced it on a, on a regular basis. So we actually put together a, a short five-question questionnaire that we asked anybody who came through um, the Institute of Hearing Research in, in Glasgow. Uh, and in the end, what we found was that the prevalence is about 15 or 20% of people who wear hearing aids of any kind um, or have some sort of he- hearing loss um, experience this internalised sound. And then when you come on to the, the level of annoyance that it causes, mm. um, we didn't uh, manage to check that, but it seemed to be that because it is such a difficult thing to explain to people, and the way that I can explain it is, is that essentially all the time we hear sounds that are outside of our head, and that's that's just real world listening. The the only time that most people will experience internalized sound um, of the type that we're talking about is if they're listening to this podcast over headphones, yeah. or if they're listening to any other podcast. Other podcasts, I guess, are available. So, um, so the, the the that's that's what we're talking about. It's the the perception of the sound directly as coming from within their their head. And um, we didn't ask about the annoyance factor of it, but what we found was that people, if we were asking people about these uh, about this internalization, if they didn't experience it, it was very difficult to kind of explain what mm. it was that we were asking them. They would sort of say, "Well, what are you are you you know." are you saying that I hear voices inside of my head or what are, what are you asking me? And that could get quite embarrassing, um, especially in Glasgow. So the, <laughs> the, the, but when people actually um, did experience it, they would say, oh yeah, I mean, the sounds are actually, you know, there's so often I hear sounds as not being where they should be. They're really just inside of my head the whole time. And it just seems to fill up my whole head. Um, and then when we asked them what kinds of sounds uh, they heard inside of their head, then it was it was sounds that you would think of as either annoying or so, or as sounds that have very little spatial information um, available to them. So things like a telephone ringing is very high pitched, so it's quite difficult to tell where the sound is, is coming from for reasons I guess we can go into later. But the, you'd have that, or you would have um, you know children in the street, or or particularly loud impulsive noises that it's very difficult to extract kind of um, spatial information from, mm-hmm. uh, and that actually started to um to inform the research as to where we we wanted to go uh, with it next so we didn't look into the annoyance thing but basically when people did experience it, it it really um it really was having an effect on their life so i guess the key thing to point onto is the fact that they they didn't have any spatial information with their hearing and so yes. so yeah. like so if we take the phone example to to really get this yes. concept across i guess you could say imagine you're trying to find your phone by ringing it you're completely unable to do yeah. that if you've got this in head out head problem. That'd be um, more, it's, more it's not that you're, you're, you're yeah, it's more difficult to do it. And also because um, 
the the sound that you get from a, a telephone ringing is quite um, high pitched yeah. and quite narrow in, in tone. It's actually quite difficult to extract spatial information um, okay, yeah. Yeah. from the sound that you're hearing. So it, it, it was that it was that kind of thing. And actually, what it boils down to, I think, after all all of the research that we we did initially for for the problem looking at hearing impaired listeners and using hearing aids, the problem boils down to uh, the fact that the spatial cues that they're getting from the sounds are um, can be changed in many different ways by the, the hearing aids themselves. Uh, and also if the sound that is being processed by the hearing aid is difficult to extract spatial information from, then things are going to get more and more difficult. So essentially, the more difficult it is to take spatial information from the sound, then the more it might be internalised. Okay. I think there's a kind of uh, a common sense to that, if that makes sense. Um, but, yes. And so yeah. originally the, the thought was that it might be a mechanical issue with the devices, but you found yes. that instead that it was, it was it's like this idea of head movement. So is that is that placement or was that? No, it, it, it okay. was what we what we looked at was that the it, it seemed like the only thing that the hearing aid could be doing to um, to cause this internalization was. Um, kind of make the cues more difficult to to hear okay. but there the are things have already been done in in that and instead of having the microphones on top of the ear as you have in most hearing aids now hearing aids sometimes have the microphone in the ear which gives you more cues as to where the sound's coming from because you're getting um the what's called the pin cues so basically the um the filtering that's done by the outside of the ear gives you more spatial information um, and also the the level of the sound going into the uh, into the ear. So the the hearing aid obviously has to provide amplification, um, and you can't really turn that down. So otherwise, a person won't be able to hear the sound. So um, that's not something that you can really you can't really solve internalization by turning the hearing aid down or, or something like that. So there didn't really seem to be a a, a an engineering solution to this problem so therefore we basically changed tack entirely and I'd looked into the with a, a colleague I'd looked into the um, effect of head movements on externalization um, which turn out to be quite large if you if the if the sound moves as you expect it to when you move your head then actually you can get rid of a lot of other cues and, and things seem to still seem to be uh, externalized so we it was an engineering PhD, so I needed some sort of engineering um, kind of outcome from my uh, PhD. So we went over to, well, what happens if we use head movement information uh, with hearing aid algorithms? So that's that's how we got there. And literally in my PhD, it's a paragraph kind of vaguely linking the two things, but it's very much a, a, a work in two parts. Um, so, yeah, so that's how we got to the head movement. So, so is this a kind of conceptual thing at the moment, the idea that if we were to add this information, it was to change the, the the dynamics of the sound as it's being processed through the through the hearing aid. Um, it would fix the problem rather than as a purely kind of like theoretically this should work rather than with actually being able to done do this. Have you have you did you eventually move on to, to yes. adding this into actual devices? Uh, not into actual devices, okay. um, but we're uh, there are uh, in the last few years. There's a prototype of an eye-tracked uh, hearing aid, okay, cool, um, which is very, very cool, um, and they're, they're sort of getting towards putting it into um, commercial devices. So it was it was a kind of new field, this new idea of using essentially tiny little inertial sensors, so gyroscopes, hmm. accelerometers, the kind of thing you have in your phone or in a Wiimote um, a games controller 
that kind of thing, using that to uh, basically give you an extra piece of information uh, that just having the audio signals wouldn't give you. Um, and this is all basically trying to move towards more and more intelligent hearing aids. That's that's where everyone wants to get to. Oh, exactly. It's a very exciting. I mentioned field. it's probably a long. It's it's not going to be a you know a few within the few years. This is going to be in every device kind of thing. So it's a bit. Well, well, I would I would think that it's it's actually the the patents are there, mm. and I think the issue at the moment is is a, as always is is battery life. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the horrible horrible things with with hearing aids um, from an engineering point of view is that the 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 battery life needs to be one or two weeks. Yes, and you're you're yeah. talking about very very low processing power, and you want a smaller and smaller form factor. Everybody wants a hearing aid to be smaller and smaller although i have theories as to as to who's driving that and and what you could do with a much larger um, device and whether our generation would actually accept um, larger devices um but basically if you have a gyroscope it, it, that's going to be drawing quite a bit of power um and it's whether you can get enough benefit from that for for um manufacturers to actually uh, take that on but th- there are there are existing prototype devices that you can wear that you can use um, not that you can buy that um, will will use eye tracking. I mean, if you if you think about Google Glass and what that was able to do, we all got very excited about that. Um, it, it, if you could have that as a hearing aid, then you could do some quite interesting and useful things. The the amount of information that that was taking in to do with your eye movements, your head movements, mm-hmm. um, that could, you know, if you had a device that size, you could do some really interesting things uh, with. Uh, with the audio that you're getting in, and also have some sort of idea. The main thing, the main thing that everybody's driving at is where are the people attending to? Where do they? What do they want to hear? What are they listening to? Okay. And um, at the moment, all we know, all we assume, if we assume anything, is that they want to hear something that's coming from directly in front of them. Mm. So we can have omnidirectional settings, which is basically t- the microphone takes in the sounds from everywhere. Or you can have what's called a directional setting, where you just have the sound coming from one direction, and we use a very, very basic um, two-microphone beamformer quite often, or four microphones we're getting to now on either side of the head, um, to just pick up the sounds coming from in front of the person. Okay. Because if we can make one basic assumption, it's that. So, so we don't. Um, but obviously, we might not necessarily need all the yeah. fancy pinpointing of of movement and that. We can instead just say we need this, this direction only or more uh, emphasis on yeah so well i think in the end it will be a combination of of many different things so it'll be um okay well the person's head seems to be moving in this direction but their eyes are kind of here and we can pick up uh, that there are three or four sources around them uh, and this is the loudest source mm. so then kind of kind of mashing all of those together in a in a in a uh, intelligent way then we can say okay they want to listen to this person or they want to listen to this sound that's going on or they're not in a kind of conversational scenario where they want to be able to to hear everything and the the issue is that you need that to happen um in an automatic way in a very uh robust way and you need it to happen in multiple different situations where the hearing aid doesn't know what kind of situation it's in if you think about um, hands-free audio in a car you know a lot of things you know exactly where the person speaking is going to be you know where uh, what the background noise is going to be and you know roughly what the kind of signal the person wants to hear is going to be as well and in hearing aids you don't you quite often have none of those things um you, you mentioned 
the idea of obviously bachelor life being a massive um, problem to be solved. Do you, do you imagine that yeah. at least in the near future there might also be a, a cost issue? Because I mean, also we, the more we talk about really amazing tech, the more likely it is that yeah. no one's actually going to be able to afford one of these. <laughs> but the the cost issue is something that actually, um, due to the the wonders of the NHS and the kind of bulk buying uh, that the NHS can do, yeah. is actually something that exists in other countries now, and we are quite um, insulated from. Hmm. So if you if you even just want to get a, a um, kind of midline hearing aid in any other in many other countries, um, quite often, sometimes that not quite often, but sometimes it's not covered by the, the health insurance, or you you might need to to choose which one you want to buy, and they'll have lots of different issues around that, and it'll be around about maybe a thousand euros to to buy one of them, or or at least five hundred. Mm, mm. um, and on the NHS, you get a device that's kind of similar. Um, for free if you want to get these super high-end ones that have just come out then you can be looking at maybe three thousand euros or four thousand euros for each device um so basically what happens is it's the same as with cars you have very very high-end devices that that come out um and then they'll be very expensive and then over time the things that are standard in those become standard in the in the cheaper devices so we would expect to see if you were if you were going to have this head movement information included, you would expect to see that in the higher end devices, and then it be, then for it to become more affordable as you time goes on. Can excuse me, maybe for going a bit um, sci-fi here, but to not to nudge back to our, yeah, our old yeah. um, augmented humanity episode, which uh, just, yes, just, marvelous. Um, there we talked a lot about the idea of not just fixing medical problems, but enhancing the current status quo. So the idea of you know perhaps having super eyes or super legs rather than just getting everyone back to normal. Um, what are your thoughts on yes. the potential to have hearing aid devices which could not just you know, give us regular sound, but enhanced sound as well? Do you, do you think... Yes, um, so that is also something that's um, coming um, and it is being driven by the fact that um, it would open up a whole new, new market for um, manufacturers to kind of to, to sell things. Um, there is a startup I think called Ear Lens or Ear. Basically, there are things called earables, so or hearables. Okay. Um, okay, so okay. you have wearable tech, and you now have hearables. So that's um, the, the kind of uh, the way they're going. And it's uh, two Bluetooth uh, earbuds that uh, you stick in your ears, and you can control basically what sound you're um, getting into your are being put into your ears from your smartphone. So you can do noise suppression. You can kind of change what levels you want certain sounds to be. You can add reverberation to everything if you wanted to. So you can make everything really echoic mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and that's that's something that you can that is actually on the market uh, at the moment. And I think that's probably where a lot of things are going to move to, and might actually will I think will definitely help uh, hearing aid design in the future because if people are more likely to have a smartphone or they're more willing to wear something something a little bit larger then actually as an engineer you can do a lot more things with that you've you've simply got more space and more power to do things Uh, and so yeah so the uh, there's also something that I'm working on um, at the moment called uh, mic up which is basically uh, it, it will if it, when it works or if it works, it will basically mix um, people in multiple different co- in a in a full um, 
kind of four or five person conversation, it will mix what level the people are talking at, um, depending on where you're looking, and do it in a kind of automatic way. That's the that's the what we hope to do with that, um, and we're developing that at the moment. But yes, uh, to uh, the short answer is, I think we will be enhancing what people can hear or the way that they can control what they hear um, in the near future. I mean, this kind of nudges into the the idea of the cocktail party effect that you can hear your own name being said in a in a crowd of other noises. The fact that we can pick out certain things i mean to what level do we understand how that that currently works uh, yeah so it's it's not um something that i've looked at mm. directly but i've uh, i've been near people who have okay. uh, so i mean i mean one thing is that the uh i've never been to a cocktail party i don't really <laughs> like the fact that it's called one i think i, it, really I think it says it a lot about what what science i think it, yeah i think it says i think it says a, a lot about what science and research was like in the 50s when they came up with it <laughs> yeah. um in comparison to now uh but if we yeah, if we call it the coffee shop effect or something, okay. yeah, yeah, what it, it there's it, what it comes down to is is um, your ability to segregate sources and to um, be able to separate things that are essentially quite similar. So because um, you know what you're trying to separate is essentially speech on speech on speech mm. on speech on speech, right? Um, and there's there's a number of ways that you can uh, try and separate those things. So. Uh, one is simply where the sound is coming from so you can selectively attend to one direction that you want to to hear in and then just try and block out the, the other sounds um, another one is, is trying to track the kind of spectral properties of each voice that you're hearing um, so if you've, you know, if it's a familiar voice to you, you might find it easier to track that in noisy surroundings than than in uh, than if it's an unfamiliar voice and, and things like that. So that's one of the reasons why if somebody shout you know says your name at a level that's way below the other words that you might be hearing, you'll hear that because you're you're used to hearing your own your own name. Um, I don't I can't really go much further than that. But we're yeah, it's certainly uh, uh, an active area of research and also one that's being applied in a computational way as well. So trying to come up with uh, kind of algorithms that will actually separate sounds out in a similar way to to a human listener. I mean, you obviously do a lot of work on algorithms. This may become a bit tech shock, but um, what kind of have you ever had experience with that that sort of algorithm, or is it is it more to do is any kind what, of separation? separates out yeah, your sound? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, what I've uh, looked at usually has been um, uh, localizing sources. Mm. So uh, using um, time time differences between microphones, because the the way that you uh, localize sounds is is uh, you essentially use time differences between the ears okay, yeah. um, on the order of uh, kind of uh, um, microseconds, and you also use level differences um, between the ears. So the the time difference is sort of obvious. If the if one ear is closer than the other ear, then there'll be a, a time difference between those the, the sounds reaching um, each ear. And the level difference is, is due to diffraction and the, the, what's called the head shadow effect. So um, if one sound is closer to the ear and the other sound, the, the other ear is, is further away, then, uh, high, then high frequency sounds um, don't diffract as much around the head. So you get a larger kind of head shadow effect. So that gives you a level difference between the ears. And with, with microphones, um, you can do a similar thing uh, quite reliably for time difference with uh with microphones on either side of the head you can do you can do something quite reliably with uh with time difference so you're basically looking at the cross correlation 
between the microphone signals and that will give you a peak in the kind of uh, the cross correlation and that peak will correspond to a time delay and that time delay will correspond to an angle so that's the kind of stuff that I've looked into and you uh, applying using that with head movement to try and more robustly uh, more robustly determine where a sound is coming from there was, there was a thing there was a, there was a specific thing you said there where you mentioned the idea of certain wavelengths of sound so higher pitch ones being diffracting differently around the head which kind of made me realize that there's, yeah. a, there's a kind of there's a there's a fundamental concept to sound which I hadn't really considered before which is, is which is that I mean when I think of a, a noise I think there's yeah. one sound coming from one person one sound coming from another person and that's how I split it up yeah. but in reality you're talking about a massive soup of different wavelengths yes so there's thousands of different sounds coming from me yeah. even as I'm just talking now um Yes, and so I imagine that's probably something you're very used to. <laughs> this kind of concept. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 something that kind of comes up early on mm. when you start when you start thinking about this stuff. And actually, if we can link back to the internalization, externalization mm. stuff, although I don't want to talk about it much more. That's fine. <laughs> the the idea that the the yeah the idea that the the um that when you're wearing a hearing aid, you don't you, you, when you're wearing a hearing aid, most of the time you hear sounds coming from where they should be coming from. But in reality, the source of the sound is a loudspeaker at your ear or just above, mm. like coming from a, from the hearing aid and going through a tube. So the fact that you you place the sound where it should be coming from because of all the other cues that you're using instead of where it actually is coming from is actually quite kind of a, an amazing um, uh, testament to, to what the brain can do, I guess. Um, so yeah, so it, but yeah, it's it, basically we look at these things as psychoacousticians. We look at these things in, in in kind of, you know, the 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 smallest way we can. We just look at single sources or two or three sources, and then over time we've now started building up to kind of what happens when you're in in more uh, multi-talker or or multi-source situations, mm. and that's a much more difficult problem. But it comes down to this idea of segregation of using all the different cues that you can possibly um, uh, use uh, to. Uh, separate out those sounds. In terms of hearing, uh, I obviously already knew that there was a lot of internal processing that happens, but I didn't realise how much there was sort of at-ear processing I could probably to coin a term, I guess. The idea that, okay, that yeah. to us just listening, it's done naturally. Do you know what I mean? Like sounds come to us in a certain yes. kind of way at our yeah. ear. And hearing aids yeah. actually do a surprising amount of, of, of work, which I hadn't considered in, in processing yes. that to make it kind of make sense to our brain as it receives it does that make sense <laughs> sort of uh, yes yeah so um so a, a lot of the work is is being done um the i the, the work that i was talking about you know the fact that it is actually placed where it should yeah, be yeah, is yeah, done yeah. by the fact that the the microphone isn't that far away from the entrance mm. of the of the ear it's out it's normally outside of the what the pinna so the the fleshy bits mm -hmm. so you lose a little bit of that filtering but essentially it's in roughly a similar uh, position. So that work is, is, is being done. What a hearing aid tries to do, um, first and foremost, is to provide audibility mm. to the person using it. So, you know, if they can't hear it, then it's not, it's not you know, you could do whatever you like to the signal. It doesn't really matter. Um, but then it does quite a few other other things that we haven't talked about. So, so one of the things it does is um, it provides audibility in different frequency regions depending on what that person's loss is so that requires filter okay, banks yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, and then it, it, 
also, if you're a hearing impaired listener, you have a reduced um, dynamic range of hearing. So normal hearing, you could the, the dynamic range is something like 120 decibels. Mm-hmm. So, you, so from from hearing nothing right away up to the threshold of of pain or a Dillinger escape plan gig or something like that. It's 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 quite it's very very wide um, range. And if you uh, are hearing impaired, not only do you kind of lose the quieter sounds, but sometimes you can also have a reduced uh, pain threshold as well so that can really narrow the the range in which you can hear all of these different sounds so hearing aids also and digital hearing aids came in about 20 25 years ago that, that um, provided a really useful compression algorithm so basically you know you take the sound in and then you sort of if that has a has a range of of 60 decibels then um, you remap that 60 decibels to 30 decibels, or in the case of of a of a cochlear implant, sometimes that can be as small as as six or ten decibels. So um, it does that kind of thing. And then the final thing that it does that we've kind of alluded to a, a couple of times is is it does noise reduction. So you know, normally if you're a normal hearing listener, you can make use of all your your the cues that you have um, to uh, uh, reduce you know basically selectively attend to where different sounds are coming from and, and pick up more information if you're hearing impaired sometimes that can be more difficult to do so what the hearing aid attempts to do is actually reduce the unwanted noise and you can ask me the question well which one is the unwanted noise and that's the that's the kind of issues that we look at now mm-hmm. um but it, it reduces the the unwanted noise um to make the the target or the source or the sound of interest more uh more uh, clear and and better heard so that's the kind of three I guess major things it does. There's also feedback reduction, but I don't go anywhere near that. And that's essentially just because the the microphone is so close to the loudspeaker um, that you can get, and and the loudspeaker can be so loud hmm. um, that you can get basically whistling feedback. And that's another thing that sort of uh, limits um, the power of hearing aids sometimes. So this is probably a question I should have asked a lot earlier, and it's probably a bit of a dumb question. But it's it could you could you could you pin down what the difference is between essentially a hearing aid and a cochlear implant yes uh, so a hearing aid is acoustic mm-hmm. and a cochlear implant is electric so um, uh, to to kind of uh, elaborate on that a little the, the hearing aid is providing a louder acoustic signal basically if you ignore everything else that it's doing it's, it's putting in a louder signal than you would have got otherwise okay. and a cochlear implant bypasses um the the outer ear the 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 middle ear and goes straight to the cochlear nerve Mm -hmm. and actually takes the sound that's coming into a microphone on the outside of the head and um plugs it straight in and electrically stimulates the the cochlear nerve oh okay Um, okay, so it bypasses everything else yeah Uh, so you mentioned also this idea of, of feedback issues with the hearing aid in that like say yeah. you've got your microphone right next to your, your loudspeaker um, yes is there a, a is there any kind of similar issue that happens with the actual cochlear implant connection to that nerve perhaps or is it literally just a case of uh, yes okay yes so um so it's not it's not feedback but it's a uh, kind of similarly annoying issue which is that um you if you use um most cochlear implants now use um, monopolar stimulation so you have basically the the electrical current comes out of an, an electrode um, that's embedded in the cochlea and then the return current goes to a kind of uh, an electrode that will be somewhere else kind of embedded in the skin somewhere 
And what that does is that the monopolar stimulation creates quite a, a large um, current spread along the cochlea. So if you think that you're you're stimulating one small part of the cochlea, actually you're you're stimulating quite a, a larger part, and that that part can vary based on the the level of the current that you're using and also the um, physiology of the person that you've implanted. Um, so what that means is that you have a limited number of channels, unlimited number of electrodes that you can actually stimulate and that the person can get useful information from. So in one way, it's not really anything like feedback because you, you don't have this kind of um, send and return thing, but it's it's an equally kind of um, limiting factor in what you want to uh, do with the cochlear implant. Oh, I didn't say that. Basically, make sure that everything's charge balanced, so that you're not causing any kind of weird physiological problems so in, the, like... in the cochlea. So you're not applying additional charge. Okay. Um, okay. And the the uh, so so you have this kind of the electrode that you're stimulating the cochlea with, and then this return electrode. And because it's monopolar, it means that it's it's actually quite a wide current spread along the a wide spread of stimulation along the. Um, cochlea so, so, so it limits on, the so, number of channels that you yeah so you say wide now are you meaning that in terms of it's you know a lot of places on the cochlea or is it's it's a lot of okay. yes okay okay so yeah so is that is, is there one location that it's added to and it's it's got an impact around wide of it or there are, or there are lots of connections lots of wires essentially yeah so so the so the cochlear implant itself so the the electrode that you put in can have um anywhere between uh it's What's the smart, the lowest number? Say it's around ten to the the, the cochlear implant, the cochlear cochlear implant, because there's a company called Cochlear. Okay. Okay. Um, so they so I'll call them Cochlear Limited. So Cochlear Limited's <laughs> implants have twenty two electrodes. Okay. Um, and so the twenty two electrodes go right the way along the the, the cochlea, which um, one of the reasons why a cochlear implant is is so um, has been so successful is that it's it's linearly tonotopically not 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 linearly but it's it's tonotopically um uh arranged so basically you you the frequencies um the the places of stimulation correspond to um a given frequency so it's all wired up properly uh, i guess yeah, you could say and okay. yes and the and the electrodes um you'll just have all of these d- different electrodes and uh, you just choose, you map the sound that's coming in to a specific electrode. Okay, yeah. And then the electrode next to that will be the the, uh, uh, the the next frequency band. So you said there's twenty in that. Is that is that the highest limit, or is that the lowest? Or uh, that's the highest. So in that one, that's the highest limit. The ones that okay. I work with are uh, sixteen. Um, and then uh, that's why I couldn't remember mm. the, some of the other manufacturers have, have fewer mm. but the 22 electrodes are never used all at once okay. because actually the, the benefit that um, cochlear implant users get from their electrodes because of this um, spread of stimulation along the cochlea uh, tops out I mean for speech it can actually top out uh, for quiet speech it can top out around about 8 and then maybe you can get up to 14 or 15 uh, in in speech and noise, which can be more difficult. Um, so so you can't have you don't you, in the twenty two electrode version, you never have all twenty two hmm. stimulating all at the same time. What it what that version gives you is um, more choices for where to stimulate. Um, so the way so the way that they do that one is to have these multiple different electrodes. And the the version that I work with from Advanced, the, this is this is the best name for a company I think since like. Uh, what's the what's the company in Terminator called? 
Oh, um, Cyberdyne, right? Yeah. So the it's Cyberdyne says it. So the the company that sponsors me is called Advanced Bionics. Okay. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so Advanced Bionics has has sixteen uh, uh, electrodes, and they can do things like uh, steer, basically um, applying. Uh, some charge to one electrode and then some charge to another electrode and basically steering the the point of maximum stimulation between those two different points so there's a number of different ways you can you can choose how to do it but that's yeah that's two of them can so so each so is each electrode attached to a certain area related to like picking up a certain frequency or of yeah. volume, so yeah. so can you can I think of it as sort of like um, like piano strings in that you know you've got your I mean... completely like a piano. Okay, so okay. yeah, so it's just the the cochlea is just arranged like a, a piano. Oh, brilliant. Um, okay, but in the but usually so in the the kind of cliched way of describing um, stimulating a, a, a with a, a damaged cochlea, which it, which you can have when you have um, cochlear implant um, patients. Is that it's a, a piano with maybe some broken keys or some keys that just don't work at all, or some of them might be slightly out of tune or things like that. So, um, a, a healthy cochlea is a piano, and then a, and then the, the, the cochleas that you might be stimulating with a cochlear implant is kind of a, a you know a piano that has some issues with it. Put it that way. If you think of like, um, plenty of sounds have multiple different in fact most sounds will have multiple different frequencies Mm -hmm. in them um, active at the same time Um, what you have to choose with a cochlear implant is the 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 frequencies that are most important or the the frequency bands that are most important for for understanding or um, basically how much of the frequency you're trying to you're you're trying to give to the listener and and what will actually be useful for them so if we come back to the piano analogy again the a piano has what 96 keys or something like that say it's say it's 100 keys and a normal hearing person can hear everything from um 20 hertz to twenty thousand hertz if they if they've looked after to after their ears um and they, they can hear very, very small differences in frequency. What you do with a cochlear implant is you take all of that information and you say, I'm going to map that to 10 electrodes okay. or I'm going to map that to 16 electrodes. So if you think of, you know, in the 1980s, you had all these graphic equalizers. Uh-huh. The sound itself has, you know, sound going from, you know, if it's speech, it'll have sound going from, I don't know, 100 hertz all the way up to, well, useful information going up to 8,000 hertz. And you're, you've decided that instead of having all of that there, you're actually just going to, I guess, split it into channels and call that maybe eight channels or ten channels. Mm-hmm. So actually, you're providing a lot less information, but it's because the the method of stimulation means that you can only provide that amount of information. Is it the idea that you only need so much, only so much of the sound yes. to to get the whole picture? So you yeah. so for example, I mean, if you know, if I had a painting of a tree, if I've got a brown blob and a and a and a green blob, I I know it's a tree. Yeah, I don't need every single underlying detail, which I probably wouldn't even notice from a glance anyway. That kind of I yes, guess. it's it's bang on. So they've um so when they when we do tests with normal hearing listeners, we we um use what's called a vocoder. So we basically try and make it sound similar to what the cochlear implant listener will be hearing, okay. and and in in for kind of uh, more basic words or sentences, you can actually get some quite high understanding from just having four channels. So that essentially mm-hmm. just means you've got just four bands of frequency information mm-hmm. 
So the envelope information in each of those bands will actually tell you enough to understand that the person is saying, you know, the cat sat on the mat or something like that. Um, and so, so yeah, so it, for for quiet speech, uh, you can actually get very good results from very few channels. It's it's when you get into more difficult situations that things um, don't work quite so well. And so that's that's what you're working on now—the idea of actually actively enhancing and, and developing and improving these implants and and and. Your research, as it works now, is actually being applied directly. I suppose. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, the, so what I'm looking at specifically at the moment is the um, is developing a, a test that will the the shortest way of putting it is is that it's a test that will in half an hour tell us the same amount of that um, three months of listening would tell us. Okay. Cool. Okay. So um, at the moment, when you make small changes to a cochlear implant to the processing strategy that you're using uh, then if you run a speech test immediately after that then people will be biased towards their old settings because they knew how those worked and they knew how to extract useful information from them I suppose for, um, I suppose that's pretty much just like when you get new glasses everything looks weird yes. even though it's yeah. actually accurate okay yeah sorry I had to yes yeah yeah so that's yeah, yeah. and I get that all the time when I put on a new mm. pair of glasses so they so and it's kind of like a more extreme version of that. So they'll be biased towards what they were what they were using before, um, and you don't want that. So what usually happens is that they'll make the changes and then they'll say, "Okay, we'll go away and listen with those settings for six weeks or two months, and then come back and then we'll make some small tweaks again. If if those are if you've improved or if you haven't improved, we'll change it again in some way." And because there's quite a lot of variability in the the kind of pathology that that cochlear implant listeners have. Um, it's still a little bit of, it's quite a bit of trial and error to try and work out exactly how to set these things up so what um, we're working on is a, a, a test that um, has all of the or the hypothesis is that it has all of the um, spectrotemporal so the, this, the frequency and the time um, intricacies of speech but it's not speech it doesn't sound anything like speech um, and uh, the hypothesis is that that performance on that kind of task on being able to to discriminate changes in these kinds of sounds will correlate strongly with speech intelligibility scores after two months or three months um and that means that we can just run this test without any of the biases without having to set send them away for two months and then bring them back and uh, i guess i should um actually tell you what the sounds sound like so they're they're called stripes and they basically sound like and you, the task is to tell the difference between those two sounds. Okay. So in one, the 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 the, the, the if you look at them on a on a something called a spectrogram, which has a frequency going up the y-axis and time going along the x-axis, they they look like a, a kind of flattened out barber's pole. So it's mm-hmm. just stripes, diagonal stripes going up, or diagonal stripes going down. Um, and the idea is that you you're able to tell the difference between them, and then we do a few things to make that that harder. Uh, and your performance on that will hopefully correlate with your performance on on a speech test, and that's that's exactly what we're we're working on at the moment. We're also going to look at how that test works with um, different types of stimulation. So I was talking about monopolar stimulation before, where you have this kind of um, widespread uh, of stimulation along the cochlea. Uh, you can also use um, tripolar stimulation, which, as the name suggests, involves uh, three electrodes. And essentially, you have um, the main point of stimulation 
in the middle um and the the kind of uh the polarity of that stimulation will be will go in one direction and then on on the on flanking sides you'll have uh uh, stimulation going in the in a in the opposite polarity, and basically that can help to focus the the electrical stimulation a little bit. So by focusing the electrical stimulation, hopefully we can actually um, allow the person to extract a bit more information out of what they're they're listening to. So that so combining these two things, yeah. So that flanking idea is it the idea that you're kind of applying a a resistance. I mean, resistance is the wrong word for me to use here because it's obviously an electrical term. But you kind of, you're, yeah. you've got a kind of barrier around the the centre pole. Essentially, yeah, you're you're just you're just focusing the 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 stimulation where mm. you're focusing the the current more on the on the cochlear, um, mm. and you can also choose how how much you're going to focus uh, that stimulation mm. as well, which can be can be quite useful. Um, so, so yeah. So the, the, at the moment, the main thing is to develop this test that could speed up optimization of of implants a lot more, um, and then also go on to see uh, what this kind of new type of stimulation um, could do and how this test would react with that. Because if it works really well with that, then it means that it will be kind of future proofed a little bit. Mm -hmm. It'll actually work with future um, processing strategies that might be making larger changes. So I, I guess. I guess the gist is essentially that you've got a problem where if you ask someone, do you hear better now or or do you hear whatever, it, you can't rely on them. And so you're getting an objective kind of, because do, do these two sound, diff sound different essentially, that's, that's the key. You're saying, can you yeah. tell the difference? And yeah. then they're either going to hear it or they're not. You can't bias yeah. an improvement to that because obviously they're blind as to, to what it is. Okay, that's cool. Yes, and and it's and and in order to be able to tell the difference between the two sounds, you have to do the same kind of processing as you would do for speech. You have to listen both to the frequency changes mm -hmm. and also how it changes over time. And so so basically, frequency and time at the same time, mm -hmm. if that if that makes sense. Together, yeah. Where do you see your next step being? Uh, so that is a good question and one that's kind of top of well, if you're a postdoc, it's top of mind continuously. Yeah, of yeah. As that as PhD comics. Uh, always reminds me um so at the moment what i'm trying to do is combine this head movement uh work that i've worked on in the past with uh the cochlear implant work that i'm doing at the moment mm. so uh and and that's essentially because the the, the uh, you know those are the two things that i have experience yeah, in so course, if yeah. i can kind of not have any of the other time wasted then that would be that would be good <laughs> although none of it's wasted uh, so yeah, so I'm I'm working on a few grants at the moment to try and to try and combine uh, head movement with cochlear implant research, and and people have started looking into that area as well about the same time as they did with hearing aids. That's an interesting thing with hearing aids and cochlear implants is that they tend to um, quite a few things run in parallel um, with one another, um, one electrical and one one acoustic and one electrical. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's where I see myself. Um, trying to go to next um and uh and and that would be yeah in the in the, the kind of academic and um public domain not in the, the private mm. so mm. i quite like work, working on on this side of things rather than the the other yeah you don't i suppose you don't want to get um, it's too stuck into one company and then have to follow what they want i suppose you would like the idea yeah of yeah um although i i say that with the you know with in the full knowledge that sometimes you need 
you know you just need to get a job <laughs> so that is that is sometimes what happens in science is you just you know you'll you'll go where the 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 work is and where the um uh yeah where the where the the funding is i guess so yeah so the plan is to try and keep everything together but sometimes you just have to go where people need you to do research so i at the end of that i sounded a little bit like mary poppins that i just go <laughs> where where the where the work takes me oh, okay. i go wherever i'm needed which sounded a little bit full of my own uh, <laughs> that's the problem stuff. what that's i meant was wh- yeah what yeah so so what what i what i meant was yeah. is that is that sometimes you don't get to choose where you go and yes. uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it's led me from being a physicist to essentially becoming more and more and more and more and more applied mm-hmm. Uh, and that wasn't a glitch in the, the recording that I said more that many times. Um, so we'll put a couple uh, more. Sometimes that's uh, more and more and more and more and more. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, applied. So it's it's uh, it's at this level you you write your grants and you you see what other people are, are offering and you mm. try and stay with with what you're um, working on. But if you need to go into something else, then you need to be flexible. And also, being flexible can be. Um, a really really fun and exciting way to do um, science because I'm essentially a physicist very very far from home okay um, yeah, yeah. so and that's yeah it's 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 fun it's really not something I would have ever considered that I would be doing by now I guess, I guess yeah there's a kind of optimum uh, there's a kind of um, optimistic kind of it doesn't matter exactly what the details are that, that could be next because something interesting is going to pop up and if not, then yes, <laughs> just apply for another grant. Yeah, and if <laughs> and if not, I mean, you know, we're always being told we have so many transferable skills. Of course, so, uh, <laughs> you know, of course. And there's, you know, there's always science communication because mm. there's, there's, you know, there's lot. But it's not like it's a really competitive field or anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> I hear everyone's got a podcast these days. Well, I think. <laughs> Well, I think I think it's been it's been really good talking to you. I'm, I'm actually excellent. It's been yeah, it's been a, it's been good. Kind of, I think I've learned actually about fifteen times as much as I thought I I would do, which you know, it's oh, good. Wow. Okay. Um, I think Great. I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll we'll try and have you on some sometime again sometime in the future. Um, I'd love to do it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mendel Switches, a production of five or so uh, PhDs uh, from the London area. Uh, remember, you can follow us on uh, Twitter and listen to our podcast on SoundCloud and stream through iTunes. And if you'd like to have some more information or background, uh, please see our Mendel Switches WordPress. We're going to try and update that more and more, ideally more than we ever did before. Thank you.